0: welcome to episode four of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast this time released on a Thursday just as the founding fathers intended it's there in the constitution next to the student loan clause I'm told I've just come off four days of temporary single dadding. My wife had to go away for an event and I was in charge. And I'm pleased to report that I didn't burn down the house or forget to feed the kids or send them to school in their pajamas, which makes one of us who hasn't been to school in our pajamas. That's a long story. I will tell it one day, I promise. In fact, I didn't just fail to burn down the house, I think I actually surprised my kids with my bare minimum competence. It was extremely rewarding in one sense, but extremely alarming in another, in that they were so shocked that I could do basic things without my wife being in the same house, that they ended up being remarkably grateful for even the most elementary of achievements. You could see them gearing up toward astonishment. My God, he knows how to use a can opener. Which brings me neatly to my guest today, Mark Caputo, because he also knows how to use a can opener. or well, so I'm told, I haven't actually seen it myself, it's just not the sort of thing you check, is it? Mark and I will be talking about the coming election in the state of Florida. Mark is even more of a Florida man than I am, in fact considerably more of a Florida man than I am, because... He has lived here pretty much his entire life. So without further ado, let's move on. Welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, Mark Caputo. Well, thanks for having me. Good to be here. It's a pleasure. So Mark, you now write for NBC.
1: Yeah, NBC Digital. Technically, we have many silos, and that's mine.
0: How long have you been covering Florida politics?
1: I mean, my first statewide campaign was in 2002, so 20 years. And what has changed since then? Well, the state has become less competitive for, for a period of time. You know, we were the ultimate swing state from that period of 2008 to through 2018, that 10 year period. The state has grown more conservative leaning, more Republican leaning. The Democratic Party has just Become a shadow of itself, and it didn't have a lot of substance beforehand uh, in terms of having an actual organization and an ability to turn out voters. Increasingly, we've seen Republicans, especially Governor Ron DeSantis, perhaps led by Donald Trump, cast off what used to be these kind of perceived wisdoms of how you you do campaign, how you can campaign, how you should campaign, how you win Florida. Like I'm specifically thinking of immigration as something, you know, twenty sixteen, the chattering class is like, no way Donald Trump could win Florida. His rhetoric about immigration is too harsh. It's gonna turn off Hispanics. Hispanics are so important to the elections here. Therefore he'll lose. Well, they were wrong. And then you heard the same thing with DeSantis, and they were wrong. And then you you know, in twenty twenty you thought, okay, you know, considering how close Florida was in twenty eighteen, a lot of folks were like, Okay, Biden could do it, and no. He, he couldn't do it against Trump either. So its evolution into just kind of a, a reflexively Republican
0: voting state it has been remarkable. So it's possible that Florida is entering its third stage because after the Civil War, Florida was a democratic state, as all southern states were. Right. And it was so democratic, in fact, that... The legislature in the 50s passed a law, which I think is now hurting Democrats, which held that any candidate on a statewide election ballot who belongs to the party of the governor must be placed first in the list. Because I was wondering when I I got my ballot through why the Republicans were listed first every single time, it it seemed unlikely Mm -hmm. that would be a coin flip outcome. But that's how democratic it was. I mean, the Democratic legislature passed that because they thought, well, we're always going to have Democrats, and we'll put them first, and there's a marginal <laughs> benefit to being first. And then, as you say, it shifted. So I have a few stats here that I, I think show how much of a swing state it was. In 1928, 1960, and 1992, Florida went a different way than the country in presidential elections. But that was it until 2020. Mm. And here's another stat. Between 1992 and 2016, Floridians cast 48,263,173 votes in presidential elections. And the difference between the number of votes cast for Republican candidates and the number of votes cast for Democratic candidates was (laughs) 17,753. That sounds about right. But what you're suggesting now is that this has come out the other side. So having been a Democratic stronghold and then a swing state, it's looking as if it's shifting towards the Republicans. And my question is, why? Good question. We started to see it, obviously, in the 90s, when
1: in the the kind of the Jeb Bush era, even after he lost to Lawton Childs in 1994, the Republicans began to slowly take over of the elections here. You know, my, my best guess is you know, the the type of people we have here, are voters, uh, they just culturally and increasingly don't identify with the Democratic Party. Uh, And there is a a sense among some that the Democratic Party has left them. And there's also a sense that just the Republican Party is sort of their natural home. There is definitely a growth factor or an importing of Republican voters factor Uh, In that, you know, one of the things that Jeb Bush did after he was elected in 1998, he made sure that the stocks and bonds tax was eliminated. Uh, And he called it uh, an elimination of of a tax on seniors and savers. At the same time, Florida was experiencing incredible development growth. There were relatively few checks put on that. So you had a place where lots of people could move and save a lot of their money. And that's especially true for retirees. And if you're one of these people who's going to move to a place because, well, you have the money, you don't want to pay stocks and bonds tax, meaning you have stocks and bonds and therefore you got money. You don't want to pay income tax. That's in our state constitution. Again, if you're a retiree, you're older, almost all of those things correlate with a Republican super voter. So they just kind of naturally come here. There's probably also a a little bit of, I, I think Florida's kind of culture and sensibility that you really saw with DeSantis, it's still kind of a frontier uh, mentality. Yeah, I understand. We got a bunch of strip malls. I'm not pretending that everyone's wandering around in coonskin caps or living under uh, palm-thatched huts. But there is that kind of hustle and drive quality of Florida that just kind of reflects conservative and Republican sentiment better than it does Democratic and liberal uh, sentiment. So I I think there's kind of that cultural flavor as well. You, you add those things together, and then you look in the Democratic side, one of the things that Barack Obama was great at, and, and it was preceded him a bit by the group Acorn, if you remember them, yeah, the organizers They conducted massive voter registration drives, because there are huge numbers of people here in the state who, by their demographic qualities,, are you know, uh, poorer, they, they tend to be uh, less white. You know, when you look at the kind of the polling and the research, more likely to cast democratic ballots. And so the idea was like, let's get these folks registered, let's get them out to vote, and let's win. And it worked under Obama in that period of time. You know, he won the state in 08 and in 2012. Without him on the ballot, though, things were a lot more challenging. But the party itself, the Democratic Party itself, was at least kept kind of buoyed by the fact that it was kind of replenishing the voter rolls and it was. Uh, Kind of making itself relevant in in those people's lives, you know that just kind of ended. So while the Republicans were naturally enjoying the kind of the the benefits of this in migration of kind of like minded voters who wanted to vote, the Democrats weren't, and they stopped doing the things you need to do to kind of grow those voter rolls. I think there might have been some sort of political miscalculations as well on messaging, especially when it comes to Hispanic voters, that we saw uh, particularly in a particularly stark way. In 2020. It started to manifest itself in 2018. So I think all of those factors together and, and, and others I, I have not contemplated help explain how we got here. Now, I, I, think, I think one thing that should be clear is Obama was a great candidate. You, know, you might have hated him as a president, fine. But I mean, the guy was a great candidate. He also didn't necessarily run against very strong opponents. That helped as well. The Democratic Party doesn't have much of a bench here. You know, one of the things I, I thought in 2020 in reporting out the presidential race in Nevada about the amount of work that Senator Harry Reid had done out there to create, quote-unquote, the Reid machine. It made me realize Senator Bill Nelson, now the NASA administrator, could have been the equivalent of that, someone who built his party from the ground up, the inside out, played favorites, put his thumb on the scale, figuratively executed enemies and elevated people who would be beneficial to him and the party. He did none of that. So it also missed having like kind of a, you know, kind of like the great man theory of history, right? It didn't really have anyone kind of guiding it as well, the Democratic Party, which I think also is something that bears some examination.
0: So you mentioned the strength of opponents. To what extent is Ron DeSantis winning, at least in the polls this year? And to what extent is Charlie Crist, the Democratic candidate, losing?
1: I'd say it's, it's a good combination of both, but the reality is even before Crist or Nikki Fried, who was the agriculture commissioner who, who lost in the, the Democratic primary to Crist for governor, before that was decided, DeSantis already had like $110 million in the bank, an untold sum of money, and money matters in a state like Florida. We have 10 media markets. It's a state where if you're going to compete, you need to run TV ads. You also need to be on digital. It's not necessarily kind of like New Hampshire- or Iowa, where you can go around to little uh, shops and restaurants and do more retail politics. I'm not saying that stuff's not important, but you got to spend a lot of money in Florida, and and DeSantis had that. I mean, DeSantis is, his profile was, is as a result of the way he he handled COVID, and I think in a certain respect, the way this combination of social media and national media handled Florida and COVID at the same time. That is to say, I don't think the national media should have won a lot of awards for the way in which it covered Florida because it, it was the pandemic. A lot of the national media is based in New York and Washington, or of course they know everything anyway, right? And they were stuck in their homes by you know fiat in some cases, also by culture. And Floridians didn't really want to do that. And DeSantis knew that in part because he's kind of a Florida man and he resisted that. And- The expert class made it sound as if Florida was going to be this charnel ground of bodies stacked like cordwood. And I remember for me as a reporter in Miami, thinking, huh, you know, what a lot of my peers are reporting and especially kind of coming through TV, you know, as to what's happening in Florida, what's going to happen in Florida, it's not coming true. And the, some of, in some cases, there was misinformation. In fact, you've written about it, Rebecca Jones, right? The self-styled whistleblower, we can call her a whistleblower anymore, who had spread the conspiracy theory that DeSantis was hiding deaths, which was uncritically echoed by the national news media. And eventually, that stuff came to a head where DeSantis looked like the guy who was standing up to the expert class and the news media and was standing up for the average Joe or Jane who wanted to get to work, didn't want to close their business, wanted to go to church. That's a big thing, right? Wanted to be able to go to a bar. And that just set him apart. Uh, you know, there I cannot tell you just time and time again when I talk to regular people, not at political events, they say, Yeah, DeSantis kept us open. And just to be very clear, I'm not defending his policies, I'm not advancing them. I, you know, if I were in charge of his messaging, I would have done it differently. I think in some respects, he's cozied up to some of the anti-vax uh, folks in, in a way that is, is probably not very helpful. But at the same time, the reality is, is people identify him with having, having had their backs and having done the right thing and made the unpopular decision. And he just reaped the benefits of it. So, you know, starting in 2021, like February of 2021, it just kind of really became clear that that he was a national force to be reckoned with, and also a state force.
0: Could anyone have beaten him this year? I ask because I am convinced that in 2018, if the Democratic Party here had nominated, say, Gwen Graham instead of Andrew Gillum, she would have won. That race was so close. It was 30,000 votes. Gillum had so many liabilities and the Democrats had a strong showing nationally, I think they'd probably have taken DeSantis out. This year I'm not so sure.
1: Yeah, this year uh, uh, this is the first election in 20 years where I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I know who's gonna win. You know, I used to kind of reflexively not even, you know, say that out loud. It's hard to think that all of the polling here and and all the prior experience and all of the the clear advantages he has are not going to lead DeSantis to be you know, out on top. The last time I wrote about it was probably about a week ago, two weeks ago. He had 27 times more money than Charlie Crist in the bank. He did 10 times more advertising on TV. He was up by between six and 11 percentage points in various polls. Republicans are now outregistered. The number of Registered Republicans now outnumber that of Democrats for the first time. It happened this year.
0: Now, is that COVID? Is that a short-term phenomenon, the result of people moving in from states that were locked down? Or do you think that's... There's some
1: yeah. of that, but there's also a lot of party switchers in there as well. Some of them is just kind of natural churn, like Democrats and independents who are already going to be voting Republicans anyway, and they just kind of did it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, I think it's a combination of those factors. And you know, we got 14 million people in the voter rolls. That's a lot of people. So there are a lot of different explanations as to what happened. But in the end, you, as I said, you just kind of stack all these things on top of each other. Would Gwen Graham have won? Maybe. Uh, remember, though, that Bill Nelson was running for re-election against Rick Scott, and he lost. And, and Bill Nelson had that kind of boring you know, candidate quality to him, and, and Gwen Graham was, was no exciting person. However, she was a woman, and that year, one woman won in 2018 in Florida, and that was Nikki Freed in her agriculture commissioner race. So, you know, yeah, it'd be interesting if we could go back in time and run some sort of simulation. Would Graham have won? It's certainly possible.
0: All right, how about the other race? How about the other race, the Rubio-Demings race? Because I keep seeing in the press these suggestions that Demings might win this and that Rubio's weak, and I can't see it. I can't see it for a couple of reasons. First, if it is true that Ron DeSantis is up by seven or eight points or more, if it is true that the various candidates for statewide office are up for, example, 11, 13 points in the Mason-Dixon poll, I can't see how Rubio would run behind them. Second, I don't see her appeal. I don't mean that from a partisan perspective. Obviously, I'm a conservative, but I can see political talent. You mentioned Barack Obama. Obviously, he was a phenomenal candidate. I can't see it with Demings. What's your read on the race?
1: I, I can certainly see, if you would have watched last night's debate, obviously, if you're a Republican, uh, you know, you probably were no, no fan of, <laughs> of the way in which she just went after Rubia. But she really made Democratic hearts go pitter-patter. I mean, they like her because she's tough. Uh, she's different. You, know, you just don't have like a black woman cop. You know, run for office. And she certainly has been done a good job of letting people know that. Uh, she's, a, she's a talented speaker. All of those qualities for her are, are there. And yeah, I, I agree that it's going to be difficult for her here. I, I agree that if people are saying that Rubio is weak, they're wrong. They don't really understand the state. At the same time, if Demings loses, that is, if the polling is right, uh, I certainly see a possibility of her making a comeback bid. Against Rick Scott say, in two years or perhaps for Governor could be for governor as well, yeah, that, that, that spot would be open and probably be a, 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 a smarter office to run for in that regard because again, open seat. I mean, don't count out Casey DeSantis, by the way, running for governor uh, Ron DeSantis' <laughs> wife. I'm serious. I've never heard that. Well, during the hurricane, all of a sudden she started a, she was uh, I, the first time I've seen this, you had a first lady standing behind uh, the governor speaking at. Uh, press conferences. She was leading rebuilding efforts. She's a former TV anchor. You know, let's talk about Carrie Lake in Arizona, right? She's very good on camera, telegenic. She's got the DeSantis name. Not outside
0: of the realm of possibility. No, that's interesting. The only ads that I see on TV for Val Demings are on abortion. I'm sure there are more. But in North Florida, we get the abortion ads. And it's made me wonder, do Republicans have a liability here in the state of Florida? Because Florida is not Alabama on the question of abortion and on social issues more broadly. The state legislature passed a 15-week ban to be uh, automatically rendered in effect by a reversal of Roe. That reversal of Roe came, that law Went into effect, then it was enjoined because the state of Florida has a state level equivalent of Roe that's going to be litigated. But it's notable, I think, that Florida didn't do what, say, Texas did and go to six weeks. It didn't do what some of the uh, states in the middle of the country did and go to no weeks. Uh, Is abortion a Profitable avenue for Democrats to explore in the state. Well, if you look at
1: look at where the Democrats are today, uh, you know, put aside that excitement I, I was telling you about Val Demings. You know, I, I noticed it on social media yesterday when she was going after Rubio, right? Like Democrats for the first time were excited about a Florida politician in like, you know, four years or two years, I should say. Well, four years, yeah, four years. We'll call it four years. Uh, I hadn't seen that in a while. Part of the Democratic Party's problem is in Florida is there's no enthusiasm. I mean, they're just kind of like on their backs. And one of the only animating principles that could benefit Democrats is abortion. So they're going there. I mean, I, I, I understand it. Is it going to be the, the knockout shot, the, the, the silver bullet to, to solve their problems? I doubt it. Uh, the polling suggests that it's not true. People are still more concerned about the economy and crime and those sorts of issues. But there was a lot of received wisdom for a long time in the state that, at least on abortion or just at least politically, like Florida is more moderate than other southeastern states. And I think back to 2012, the Florida legislature put on the ballot a measure to ban the public financing of abortions, right? Right. There's not public financing of abortions. That thing failed by 10 points. So I mean, one way to interpret that, if you were in the, the, the quote unquote pro-choice lobby, would be that by 10 points, Floridians favored in 2012 public financing of abortions. Right. Right. So th- there is some evidence out there to suggest that it's probably smart for the Florida legislature, at least it was at the time, to do the 15-week ban and, and not any other. You know, I think statistically, what ninety percent or so of abortions occur in those first fifteen weeks. You know, you talk about Republicans being so pro-life. It's like congratulations, you've, you've passed a bill that only stops ten percent of abortions, right? Yeah. Um, which you know, the, the pro-life lobby, uh, so to speak, you know, probably has some heartburn with, which is why they they probably would want these other measures. But it's an open question as to what happens if Ron DeSantis wins and if Republicans keep control of the Florida legislature, there's a great chance of that. Do they, do they go a little
0: harder in the paint, so to speak? Uh, they might. Having observed him as a politician, what do you make of the argument that you hear from some observers, who aren't always entirely um, neutral politically, <laughs> that DeSantis is fine at the gubernatorial level, but that he would struggle to make the jump up to the national stage?
1: I mean, I, you know, it might be true, right? I mean, as Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan and then they get punched in the mouth. You know, let's see how you perform. I, you know, people have compared him to Scott Walker, the governor from Wisconsin who decided to run in uh, 2016. You know, some sort of, you know, exciting governor gets things done and takes on the left and just fizzled out. So it's certainly possible. The advantages DeSantis has is he has an uncanny ability to kick fights and take out positions that drives the left insane and sometimes drives them insane to the degree that they wind up doing and saying things that are sort of demonstrably not true, uh, which makes him look more accurate or or more uh, serious. And Republicans certainly love when someone is, you know, quote unquote, owning the libs. So he's got that. uh, And he has that just come all you uh, fighters attitude, right? Like, it's like, you get in a fight in an empty room sometimes. <laughs> and th- they, th- there is certainly a huge segment of the electorates, definitely the Republican electorate, that wants a fighter. And, you know, he, he knows it. He says in his speeches, he doesn't back down. He's always going to do what's right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's in the kind of the plus column. In the minus column, a few things. He he doesn't have a lot of charisma, at least on the stump, right? Like if you look at Carrie Lake in Arizona, like this is this is a kind of a woman who is really able to, to kind of to command both a press conference and a camera with just a, a tremendous amount of charisma that, say, Ron DeSantis doesn't have in comparison. Strictly the the physical attributes. He, he has that kind of high, whiny voice. I'm not sure how well that translates over, but you know, I wouldn't count him out. I wouldn't necessarily count him in. However, you know, in 2021, in February 2021, when you know, when I first wrote about him as a national figure, before the polling showed it, the reason I did is I was doing some other story, an unrelated story about okay, you know, if Donald Trump doesn't run for president, he's just you know a month after January 6th, right? If he doesn't run for president what are the kind of the lanes of the Republican party look like uh, for the various candidates who, who would run there's, and you know, I kind of compared it to beer. There was like the Trump ultra lane, the Trump light lane. And there was like never Trump, right. Or Trump zero. And um, Trump zero is barely a lane, right. It's like more like a, you know, bike path or something. <laughs> and uh, but in doing that, I would specifically not mention names. And in talking to Republicans, like, grassroots types uh party chairs from texas california new york illinois ohio like they would all and they didn't know i was i was based in florida they would all instantly say Ron DeSantis' name just like right off the top of their head so there's a lot of goodwill for him out there uh bob vander is an evangelical kind of leader of political like if you want to run for office in ohio in, in iowa and you want to get the support of evangelicals, Bob Vander has got a call. He's
0: a big fan of DeSantis. Uh, You know, that matters. Interesting. All right. Well, it's now exactly three weeks, I think, until Election Day. And I can't imagine that the race is going to change too much. But if it does, Mark, you'll be the first person I ask to come back on and rub all of this out <laughs> and re- recalibrate it. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. No, I really appreciate it. I guess that, that went a lot
1: faster than I realized, so, so that's a good thing.
0: And now it's time for another Q and A. I have two questions this week. Number one: Do your boys have any of your accent, or are they one hundred percent American? Well, I would say their accents are American, but with a little bit of English thrown in. My kids do say certain words a touch strangely, almost as if they're not fully committed to the part. But of course, they don't think that they speak weirdly at all. They think they're completely American, and that I speak weirdly. And this manifests itself in a couple of ways. The first way is that they grow confused by my pronunciation and they ask me to repeat myself. Glass, class, pass, those words invite instant pushback. Ranch, as in the dressing, bath, and then zebra, zebra, giraffe. And they don't do this, but the one that I just can't get my head around and I expect at some point in the future to be mocked for is, well, you would say, Notre Dame. I know in America you say Notre Dame or Notre Dame. But I grew up speaking French and I just can't do it. So I don't. So instead, every single time I say it, I apologize beforehand and I explain myself. And then I say Notre Dame. Which doesn't help. And I'm sure it won't help when my kids get older. The other way my kids deal with my accent being different is that they mock me. They say, that's not how you say it, and then they giggle and they look at each other, and then they start with their slightly confused explanations as to why I'm a bit different than they are. Sometimes they get it right. They'll say, daddy talks like that because he's from England, but sometimes they get it just a little bit wrong, and they say, daddy speaks like that because he can't speak English, which amuses me to no end because speaking English is pretty much the one thing I actually can do. Second question, and this is a much, much weightier one. As an atheist, how do you think about the Bible? Have you read the New Testament recently? Do you find it interesting or do you find it dull given that you do not believe it to be God's word? Well, that is a huge question and I will do my best. It's correct to say I don't believe the Bible to be God's word. But I I don't think it's just a book either. It would be ridiculous for me to pretend that I can in any meaningful way separate myself from its cultural influence. I am a cultural Christian. I'm married to a real Christian. Most of my friends are real Christians. Most of my co-workers are real Christians. I went to Christian schools. I'm steeped in Christianity. Now, I'm not a Christian because I don't believe what one has to believe to be a Christian, and I think it would be disrespectful for me to pretend that I am. Ethically, though, I'm informed by Christianity because the culture I grew up in was Christian, and as a result, it was informed by the Bible. The same is true... In literary terms, I'm extremely partial to the King James translation of the Bible because it's so beautifully written. It's almost Shakespearean in scope, or perhaps Shakespeare is biblical in scope. There's some English chauvinism for you. I forget who said it, but someone once said that the King James Bible is the only great work of literature that has ever been written by a committee. Not only is it a stunning work of literature, but it's also extremely familiar. The Bible, and particularly that version, is referenced everywhere. It's woven throughout casual conversation. It's in the plays and books. It's in the church services I grew up attending. You can't read any primary source documents from modern Britain or colonial America or revolutionary America and understand them without understanding or at least being familiar with the Bible. So it's woven into my life, even as a non-believer, in its metaphysical claims. And look, those claims are extraordinary in every sense of that word. The Bible contains the single greatest story ever told. Nothing comes close. I'm not using story pejoratively there. It's a story, whether you believe it or not. That term is used frequently by believers and non-believers. And the central story in the Bible is indescribably moving. So no, I don't think it's dull. On the cultural point, there's this story that the historian Martin Gilbert used to tell about Winston Churchill and Harry Hopkins. Harry Hopkins was an attaché to Franklin Roosevelt, sent to England. And in 1941, they met in Scotland at the Station Hotel. Churchill, at this point, is desperate for American help, and Hopkins knows it. And he could sense that Churchill wanted a signal that the Americans would help the, at that point, standing alone British Empire. And after dinner, he says to Churchill, according to Martin Gilbert, I suppose you wish to know what I'm going to say to President Roosevelt on my return. Well, I'm going to quote you one verse from that book of books Whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. And then, according to Gilbert, he added very quietly, even to the end, which made Churchill cry, because everything made Churchill cry. He was famously lachrymose. Now that is from the King James Version. Uh, it's almost identical in the American Standard Version, just with different spellings and one different word, Lord in one and Jehovah in the other. The whole section for those interested reads like this. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me." And I think this illustrates my point, which is that Churchill and Hopkins, although they were from different countries, and although they lived in a time when English English and American English were at their most different, Bill Bryson talks about that in one of his books, that the 1940s marked the high point of linguistic divergence between the two countries, which of course would change as mass media homogenized everything. But even given those circumstances, Churchill and Hopkins shared that cultural touchstone, and I do too. I actually read that passage to my wife on our wedding day, so nope, I I don't find it boring, I find it foundational, even though I don't believe. And who knows, maybe that will change too, but if it does, you won't find out until next week, because that's all we have time for today. Thank you to Mark Caputo for helping me with the Florida update. Thank you to my children for being impressed that I can use the toaster. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm off to France today. My first trip there since 2017. So if they let me come back, I will see you all next week.